People are strange. People get better. People. People who need people. That was Raise Your Fist, the beginning of a song from Nathan Bell from his Love is Greater Than Fear, 48 Hours in Traderland CD from 2017. This is a podcast that I started about a year ago as a way to focus, shine a spotlight, whatever you want to call it, on some of the more interesting people that I run across in my job as a reporter with the Chattanooga Times Free Press, but also just in general. These are people that have stories that maybe didn't fit in a newspaper article or that are ongoing stories and they needed a follow-up or they're just bigger uh, or I just find them interesting to be quite honest. And this is one of those. Uh, I've wanted to do this podcast for quite a while. So Nathan is a singer-songwriter, been around, been performing for many, many years, uh, took a break. Uh, but his back performing, he's got uh, several albums out just in the last couple of years. He's got a brand new one that he's working on currently that'll probably be out within the next year. He is one of the more interesting people that I've met in the last couple of years. Enjoy spending time with him. He is not shy about sharing his opinions, which is what I just completely love about him. On his bio, he writes, I never use pitch correction software. I think recordings should sound like they were made in a real room. I hate modern drum sounds and overt compression. I love the work. I look angry, but I'm deeply happy. I'm an atheist. I'm a lefty and a gadfly. I'm grateful. And that pretty much is on the money. That pretty well sums Nathan up. The reason we are here, he joined me in the 1921 Society Lounge. At the Tivoli, thank you to Dave and Sam and Nick over there at the Tivoli Foundation and the, and the Tivoli Memorial Auditorium for letting me use the room to do a lot of these recordings. And thank you also to Nathan for, for doing this. The idea behind it is Nathan has several albums that he's recorded. He's, I think, one of the best singer-songwriters around. Uh, we have several, but he's, he's right there up there. And what I wanted to do was sort of break down how does somebody write a song and let me say up front I don't think for a minute and I'm sure Nathan would agree that either of us thinks this one hour podcast or however long it goes 
is the end all be all has all the answers one thing and i'm let me say this i am not a songwriter i'm just very fascinated by it and i interview a lot of songwriters and one thing i've learned is that there is no singular process there is no magic formula there is no secrets to it it's uh, a lot of work a lot of work like writing anything one of the reasons i wanted to start this with nathan is he, his father, Marvin, is a, is a well-known poet. Nathan approaches it much from that light. There are no wasted words. There are no extra words. Everything is there for a reason or it's not there. And we talk about that. He plays a couple of songs for us towards the end, and then we kind of pick them apart lyrically, how they got there, the ideas behind them. It's really interesting. I'm hoping to do this with other songwriters. I just wanted to start with Nathan because, like I said, he's one of the very best around, and I knew we would have something to talk about. So here we go. Thank you so much for listening, and please send me a note, send Nathan a note if you want on what else you'd like to hear, whether you agree with him, disagree with him, something I've said. You'll notice a couple of silly mistakes in there from him and from me. So have fun. Thank you. And I hope you enjoy the podcast. Thanks again to the Tivoli for letting me be here. I have with me, I guess I can call you my friend, my friend Nathan Bell, singer-songwriter from Signal Mountain, Tennessee. Really a odd place for a guy like me to be. <laughs> yeah. We you got fit there right in. We got there and we stayed. That's how it fit right in. We'll get into that some other day. <laughs> no, I mean, that's a great, actually, it's, you know, it's like all places. Most human beings are fantastic. Um, and I get to teach out of the Mac, so every day my uh, Google Maps tells me it's a good time to leave because traffic is light and I drive the quarter of a mile over to the Mac for my <laughs> two hours. <laughs> Sometimes yeah, it wants is. me to leave a few hours early just to make sure I get there. That is a good thing about being up there. You're pretty close to wherever you need to be. It's got some other issues. I mean, it's yeah. the 100th anniversary of the town, and it got 99.9 years to pay reparations for. But other than that, <laughs> <laughs> pretty good. <laughs> but we're going to do something different today. I have been talking with Nathan for... Gosh, many, many weeks now about trying to do this. So we're going to try to take everybody through how to compose a song. Uh, we're not going to do, you have some ideas, so we're not going to do, we didn't walk in here blank, right? We're not going to try well, to do that. I'm pretty blank. I mean, I, I, yeah, I'm actually, a... I made the choice last night. I went through a bunch of things that were half finished and half started, and I realized that wasn't going to be worth anything to you in the end run because... The process of getting a song started is probably the hardest part for most people. That's assuming that they don't that they don't do it. Like some of the Nashville guys, and this is not a knock on what they do because they have to make a living doing it and they have to sell a lot of songs. And they'll go in every day and they don't they'll just keep throwing stuff at the wall until it sticks. Right. That's a perfectly legitimate way to write, and it's a really good way to write if you have to put out fifty two or sixty songs a year, co written or otherwise. But for a guy like me who has the freedom of operating as I see fit, because nobody's paying me much to do it. Um, <laughs> well, let, let's... You know, that's a different thing. Let's kind of start with that. You asked me before we turned everything on if, 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 if there was going to be time for philosophy questions. But one thing I've learned from doing this, my job as a reporter interviewing songwriters for so many years, is there is not a right or wrong way. No. There is not one way. There not is... Even with Even for individual <laughs> writers... 
there is sometimes not one way, is there? There's. I don't have one one particular way of doing it. Yeah. Um, and I, I happened to, I went on Google, just YouTube, just because I thought it would be fun about an hour ago, and there are all kinds of videos. How to write a song in 10 minutes. How to write a song in 10 easy steps. Um, one girl even had like little cartoon drawings that she had done and then cut them out and throws them on yeah. the table in front of her. So I think like you said, not to dismiss it, you, somebody might come out with a good song at the end of the day. Yeah, they come out with a bad song and be happy they did it. I mean, that's the other secret is I get, I get, I don't teach a lot of songwriting because to be very honest with you, I'm kind of a mean teacher. A lot of times when people go to songwriting retreats or songwriting workshops where you would think that somebody who'd been writing and recording legitimately for 35 years would be a valuable asset, I'm actually a detriment to them because there's a couple things I don't believe in. One of them is I don't believe there's any such thing as a formula for doing things. I mean, you learn your rules. Like I, You could probably learn a 12-bar blues, then get better at your instrument to where you could augment it mm -hmm. and write songs for the rest. And Chris Smither, you could write songs for the rest of your life because you learned how to play the, the blues really well or fingerpick style ragtime or something like that. And you probably wouldn't have to deviate from that form for the rest of your career if you got really, really good at it. That limits the number of mistakes you can make because the form is cont contains you, right? Right. Or you could get kind of Gil Scott Heron and decide that you're going to hang your words on whatever music made the words work, but you give the words absolute dominance. I'd say that I'm probably a 60-40 guy. The words are probably... The lyrics are 60% for me and 40% is the music, although I'm getting closer to 50-50 as I get better at it. You know, you do it long enough, sooner or later you'll actually learn how to do it. But to the point of, of is there a way to do it, there are proven ways to keep yourself from not doing it. Like, for example, I don't believe in writer's block and never have. Mm. Writer's block just means you don't want to be bad at what you're doing. But there's an inevitability to being bad at what you're doing. It, it really is helpful sometimes to hear the process, for example, to to get the, um, the Blue Note jazz records and hear the five alternate, alternate takes. Sometimes they literally have solos in them that went sideways and no way in hell was that what the guy intended. So for me, it's all about how willing are you to, to make a loud mistake. And so when I do teach people songwriting, I say, you, know, you're gonna, you have to be brutally honest with yourself. And the only way you're going to be honest with yourself is if you can hear what you're doing. And you're going to play it in public when you think it's good enough. But if that's 65 versions later, so be it. Yeah. If you wrote it in your sleep by and by accident, it was great, and you made a couple of little changes and made a hit. Okay, good. Just doesn't happen very often. First of all, I'm, I meant to say at the beginning, I'm I'm approaching this a couple of ways. One, some of the similar questions that I've asked artists before, but also I'm going to ask probably the dumb question, the naive question, um, and I fully expect you'll be brutally honest enough to tell me when I do. But <laughs> I think for the listener. I'm hoping maybe it's a question they have in their head because everybody has a different experience. Level. Well, you know, they always say there are no stupid questions. That's a lie, of course. Yeah, I, but And I, I can tell you the one stupid question I've heard in my life. I was taking a first responder class, and we were talking about what you do with, uh, when I was a fireman, what, what you do with amputated limbs, which is an interesting conversation in itself, including make sure that you wrap it in plastic before you throw it in the beer cooler that you brought to the, right. to the accident. You know, because everybody brought beer. Right. You know, but take the arm, take the leg, take the... And we had a lot of motorcycle accidents, and a lot of times you've got an arm or a leg on those. So um, <clears throat> there was a person who would later turn out not to be competent enough to do this job who raised their hand and said, um, what are you doing a decapitation? 
<laughs> so I believe that's the stupidest question. Um, that's up there. So from there on out, you can't. I mean, how can you lose? That's up there. Stupid uh, questions. You, you were stupid questions. You were talking about the the process and getting, I guess, getting started. And do you you have a certain time of day, a routine? I'm. I have. I've learned that I work better in the morning, and that may be uh, somewhat of an effect of age. My father, who's a poet, his most of his writing takes place in the wee hours of the morning. And always has. He's when I was a kid, I'd, I'd wake up in the middle of the night because I didn't sleep great as a child for some reason, and uh, he'd be working. And he was always working at weird hours, and mm. <clears throat> that's when his brain clicks. My brain starts clicking at four forty-five, five thirty in the morning. And you know, if I get up and, and somewhere between six and seven, I start to to process things. By noon, I'm done pretty much. And I, unless I'm taking some time off, as I did the last few weeks. Uh, I play an hour to two hours every day, and then I teach three and a half to four hours every day with a guitar in my hand. So there is some accidental discovery that takes place. You know, if you're playing and you think, well, that song's almost done, I'll try to play it. It's often the finishing touches drop in when you don't expect them. So the process of going over the stuff, going back like a fiction writer would and revising my past work before going forward with my new work or however you do it, that takes place in the morning, always. There's three things that remind me that I was thinking. One, it, it always amazes me, and I always ask people, songwriters, how they know when something is finished. Well, That's, that I, seems to be the genius in the in the work. For me, it's it'll it'll it happens when I remember every word I'm singing going forward without ever seeming to have learned a song. And what that means is that the words fit together in such a way that because I write, if someone listening to this were to go to my website and take the time to think of it academically. They'd see that I write in, in what's generally thought of as declarative plain speak for the most part. <clears throat> I probably owe more to Hemingway and Jack London than I do to any songwriters because I try to be conversational, hopefully poetically conversational, but you won't find aspiration, you won't find um, homily, you won't find strong metaphors compared to some writers. You won't find vague lines because it's just not the way I work. And so for me, because the song is in some ways a conversation, when it's when I can sing it without looking at the words again, it's done. Now, often that means there's still a few words here and there in it that as I sing, I'll think, well, you know, I'll, fu- I'll fuss with that. But, uh, you know, I've got songs that, I've got a long, complicated song, speaking of Gil Scott Heron, that I wrote it, I messed with it a little bit because it was mostly what I wanted. And then I, one day I was sitting around and I started playing it and I got through the whole thing all the way. And I thought, okay, that's interesting. That, mm-hmm. that all makes sense to me. So for me, it's, it's when it's memorized and when, it, when it's in the, in the vault. Yeah. You know? The other thing that has always amazed me is the idea that in a band where you have co-writers or multiple writers, where one guy comes in with a snippet of a lyric, the next guy has a guitar lick, and then somehow they match them together. That's always fascinated me, the idea that the lyric could be this completely dark thing and the melody is this bouncy sort of... Well, those two things often go together. Well, if you think of Irish music, there's plenty of songs where everybody's dead, but you dance to it. There's tons of examples. Yeah, and, uh, and the thing is, I will say one thing. I do think that bands, in the name of egalitarian behavior and the kindness of bands before they break up, often... Credit well, their girlfriends break it. Off. Well, that's a little. Uh, I don't know, man. Spouses, whatever. No, not necessarily. I mean, it's usually it's usually a manager, right? They change the manager. Yeah, well, which is usually on the on the 
on behest of one of the, the, the one of the significant others. Um, but to that point, they often talk about the pro- writing process as if it's in some way democratic. It isn't. Uh, if you look at the writing, you, you look at the way the Stones worked, you look at the way the Beatles worked, as history has proven, an awful lot of that stuff is done by one guy. That The heavy lifting is done by one guy. Right. But because everything has everyone's name on it, they'd prefer it that way and they keep it that way. I don't. And right now in America, there's American writing especially, I guess it's true in some of the European artists, but a lot of American songwriters are hesitant to admit they co-write. So you'll find a lot of people talk about themselves as writers, including some very famous writers heralded for their genius who seem to have a co-writer on every single song. Sure. So there goes both ways. I mean, sometimes one person doesn't do the work but takes credit for it, and sometimes a lot of people Yeah, do. yeah, the partnerships I get, but I, I guess I'm thinking of when they there actually are partnerships. So like the actual... So you're talking about the building blocks of the song, essentially. Yeah, yeah I that's a funny thing because... When they talk about, I'll use the Beatles, even though I have to be very honest. I'm kind of a, I have a mixed mixed thing about the Beatles. I, I I understand their place in music. I have never been able to to listen to them at length. Fair Too enough. Much. And it's and it's except for George's stuff, which I find absolutely fantastic. And I think when I was a kid, I always knew it was George's stuff because it was the stuff that stopped me in my tracks. Mm. I mean, something is as good a love song as anyone will ever write in the history of time. You know, it's right up there with Moon River. It's just astonishing as a song. So <clears throat> as the Beatle haters start turning off this podcast, I mean, as the Beatle lovers start turning off this podcast because a guy didn't, didn't bow down to them, I want to talk, when you're talking about that process, the interesting thing about the Beatles is how often one of them needed to be left alone to finish what they were doing. So Ringo, who's the most underrated drummer there's ever been for some crazy reason, I mean, there's no evidence whatsoever that he's not a great drummer, yet he has to fight this battle right. all the time. Right. You know, it's like... <clears throat> it, goes, it probably goes back to the Lennon quote about he's not even the best drummer in this room. That's well, where it started. Yeah, well, Lennon was clearly a prick. I mean, everybody was, can yeah, tell. Absolutely. So, I mean, it, it's, there's a, and he was a self-aware prick. I mean, when you read about his history after the Beatles, it's all just John Lennon coming to terms with him being a prick. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Being and, angry. Why is he so angry? But And, you know, and to some extent, although... I, I, I kind of don't like the whole um, New York City intelligentsia attitude. The fact that he was willing to elevate a woman in a time when everyone treated women as muses and other lesser beings, his attitude with Yoko is rather interesting and kind of cool. Mm-hmm. But Ringo, you know, he, he wrote a lot of the parts. He wrote a lot of those parts that are interesting in Beatles songs because he was a left-handed drummer playing a right-handed drum set. And when you start thinking about all that stuff... You realize that, you know, if someone's talking to you while you're doing it, it's real hard to do. So in most cases, people have to go off to their corner and finish it and bring it back and assemble it. So I always think of every band situation I was ever in where we changed things. It was like a Lego. You had all the Lego pieces and eventually they were all put together in the middle of the room and stacked up. And then you start to refine it. But going back to your original point about everybody having a different way to do things, Rush, the lyrics came in in that strange you know, freshman year of college poetry that they start with. And and then the music was done around the lyrics, it appears. So you're going to do what you're going to do, I guess. It's interesting you pick those two bands, because I think those are two completely different drummers. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm not a big Neil Peart fan. I, I To me, and they're the opposite of each other, it seems like. Oh, yeah. Ringo's drumming is what it needed to be. 
in yeah. my opinion. His licks are exactly sure. what the song needed. I guess you could argue that Pert's are the same. But I mean, if you think about what Rush off. does, Pert's stuff is, is appropriate. Yeah. Just, you know I mean? But it's all just flashy showing off. It doesn't move the song. I guess it does move the Rush song forward. Well, if you think of a Rush song, I mean, yeah. you know, Rush is a completely legitimate group within their own being. You know, it's like, it's like, I have strong opinions about music, what I like. What I, what I don't have is a strong opinion about whether it should exist. <laughs> you know, I mean, have you ever seen Dragon Force? Yeah. You ever seen The Crowd? Yeah. They're 19-year-old shirtless boys with plastic swords. Yeah. Do I think that's an audience I need to cater to or do I want to go to that show no but it makes me laugh my butt off well here's my thing we're, we're going to get to the song right your song here in a bit um, yeah. when I, whenever I would do a review and it was the only way I could get through it because because of my job I was asked to review everything from symphonies sure. to opera sure. to whatever Yeah. simple questions what's the artist trying to do and did they do it well Right. if you stick to that you can pretty you're much. You're pretty safe. You're pretty safe. You can cover. So Dragon Force is, is pretty great at what they do. Oh, yeah, they are. So when you sit down in the morning or whenever your writing session is, what's the process? What's the start process? Do you pull out yesterday's work and relook at it, or you sit down and say, I need a fresh idea? Or It depends. If I'm heading toward the studio, I'll usually have some songs that I've finished already in place and I want to make sure they feel the right way. And one of the ways I do that is boring, but it's actually to edit the, the typewritten, the, the computer, go on the computer and make sure the lyrics are clean for when they get put on a record because I put lyrics with all my albums. And that leads, that's a good process. That's a winnowing out because if something's wrong while you're trying to make sure that you're grammatically set up properly and you've done all the punctuation and there's no typos and something someone else is going to see, you see other things. So there'll be that process sometimes. Sometimes, because I've got fairly battered hands, I have to warm up a bit every day. And sometimes during the warm-up process, I'll be playing something I've been working on, and that will lead me to want to go to that song and figure out if there's another verse. Every once in a while, I'll get to a song where it's 85% done, and it's, it aggravates me at that point. It's in my head all the time. I can feel it there. I don't... It doesn't... Uh, for a, non, for a thing that makes me very little money, it takes up an enormous amount of my subconscious. And sometimes I wake up in the morning and, I'm, and that, that last 15%, that last 10% isn't going anywhere, but I'll bring it out anyway just to shake it and, you know, and make sure that during the rest of the day it's still there. But the relief of finishing one is so great that the unfinished songs that, have, that, are, that are well past 50% are where I start. Well, that gets... That kind of puts a bow around my earlier question is how do you know it's finished and how do you know it's 50% or 85%? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I can if, tell if you. It maybe I, just needs a... Well, I can tell you a technical way this works. I've done this a long time and I kind of know, even when I don't want to know, sometimes what needs to be done. So I'll have a song, I really, really like it. I'll think, man, yeah, this is pretty great. I'll play it. Something's bugging me about it. I'll start working with it, and I'll realize that I've got... I need to rip apart the whole thing and take three lines out of the course and start over. The re, when I know it's done is when that kind of stuff doesn't yeah. bug me. Now, technically, when do I know it's done? You know, when can I... When would I record it? I have to live with it for a while. So yeah. when it's done in my mind, and I've worked with it for three or four weeks, it's, that's often when I realize, okay, it really is done. There's a, you know, it's no, it's no different than writing a novel. You know, there's a period of time between the editor and, and when you redo it. 
One of the, I was a judge, and we've talked about these before. We won't get into the whole debate over contests. Contests, but tis no debate. There were <laughs> several of the artists. The story in their introduction about the song better was the song. way better than the song. That's not unusual. Yeah. And it's, it's no different than a story that I've written where, you know, I've had, here's the nugget, here's the, the thing, and then the story just dies. After you've written the one sentence, there's nothing else, there's no meat, there's nothing to fill it, there's no, there's no makeup on it, there, you know, it's just, eh. So, I mean, I get, I get that. And I guess that gets to your living with it, put it away. I don't know who the art or poet was, but I remember reading years ago, Frost or somebody said, I usually write put it in a desk drawer for a year and come back and wonder who's been messing with my shit. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, that's, there's some truth to that, although I'm trying to think what I have. I have a couple of songs that are going to be on this next record that sat around for a year then got revised. That doesn't happen very often, but that was because I had these blues-based, soul-based songs that didn't fit on records. And so I put them away, put them away, put them away, put them away, brought them back out, made little changes on them and used them. The secret to writing anything as short, small, and specific as a song is to take essentially a, a, a small, how do I explain this? Like one of the reasons I don't write a lot of love songs is that A, I'm not that interested in writing them, and B, I write about love in everything I write. I just don't feel like calling it love. I, I don't want it to be, play, and there's and I have some rules for myself, you know, um, you can write a blues just by literally singing my baby and then putting something with it. Mm -hmm. You know, my baby took my car and gone. I got nowhere to drive. Now I'm walking all the time. I mean, that's basically 75 songs right there. Right? Well, that's fine. And that's why I say some forms lead you a certain way. But if you're going to be, if you're going to tell the story, as you say, what you're doing is you're taking a, a very large story. You're finding one specific part of it, which is your song. It has to be specific. It has to be uh, defensible. It's a thing that if you go from the beginning to the end of the song is coherent, makes sense, has a story, has a point of view, isn't cynical or, sar or, or, or sarcastic. I mean, you know, unless you're going for cynical and sarcastic, which you know, there's some punk bands, that's the whole thing they did. But if you're writing a song that you want to stick around, you want to tell a story, you take a very small thing and you make it smaller until it's so small it represents everything. Hmm. which is insanity, but that's, you know, it's... Songwriters are writing haikus, they just don't know it. You know, they're saying one thing, but they're hoping that something else carries over. Right. You know, it's like, or you write the bird as the word. Yeah. And I was talking about this with my friend Richard yesterday. He was in Vietnam, a lot of other guys. And he said to me, we were laughing talking about songwriting, and I said, somebody had to write Bird is the Word. It didn't exist before. And Richard asked a lot of the same questions you do, because he plays guitar, and he can't figure out how to write a song. He just can't do it. He said, I don't get how it's done. I tell him he doesn't agree with me. But, and we've been friends a long time. But yesterday, we were talking about songs, and I said, you know, somebody wrote Bird is the Word. Yeah. It wasn't there before. Right. And he said to me, yeah, without that song, a lot of guys wouldn't have gotten through Vietnam. That's yeah. a very significant thing to say about that's a song. That's huge, yeah. Right? Well, exactly. I mean, and it's the stupidest song. It's fantastic. The bird is the word. Is anybody heard, you know? I mean, I can't sing it and play it right now, but if I think hard enough, I can get 85% of it. <laughs> I think I could, you know, too. And if then, it started, I could sing along. You know, and then, there's, and then there's uh, then there's Gil Scott Heron doing The Bottle. 
or the revolution will not be televised or Bill Withers in, in Harlem or, you know, or Smokey Robinson and My Girl, which ruined it for songwriters for the rest of time for writing non-sexist, non-misogynistic, truly loving love songs. Mm. Can you beat My Girl? Probably not. Right. Can you equal My Girl? You could try. <laughs> you know, uh, you know yeah. James Brown, King of the Dance songs and King of the... Uh, King of the Black Panther Party songs, you know? All that stuff's great. You just have to find your own thing. And that's another thing about knowing when it's done. It's done when it's you. Yeah, there you go. Good you know? Enough. And Good most, people, they, most people, they want to write a song people like. You know? It's hard not to want to write a song people like. That's a really good way to not write a song. Yeah, that gets into the whole other... Did you write it just for yourself? Did you write it for somebody else? Should somebody identify with your lyrics if you wrote it about something very, very personal? Well, that's an interesting one, right? Right. Because what do we have now? We have an enormous amount of belly button staring. Yeah. I mean, to the point of where I have to say, I honestly think songwriting in America is at an all-time low. That there is so much stuff about, about how I feel. Well, yes. One of the strangest interviews I ever did was with a 20-year-old kid who recorded an album in his living room. Cool. Yeah, good credit to him. But he, that's, that was his answer. I said, what are these songs about? He said, well, I just wanted about write what was on my mind and thought people wanted to hear it. And I live next door to an old curmudgeon guy whose son graduated from Duke and announced that he wanted to be the next great novelist. And the old man said, you hadn't even had your nose bloodied yet. Who the <laughs> hell wants to hear, read what you've got to say? Well, uh, yes. Yeah. There's truth in both of that. There have been a lot of very talented, very good young songwriters, but it, it is, to your point, there's a lot of people well, just writing with them. And, and, I, and I wouldn't expect a 20-year-old songwriter to want to be who I am at 59. And I wouldn't expect me or him, I wouldn't expect us to have a mutual understanding unless, unless we were open enough to the idea that another person's uh, opinion, idea, art is valuable because of where they are and who they are. And a good example of this is Taylor Swift. I've been holding the line against the Taylor Swift haters since the day she showed up. Yeah, you have. Yes, you have. And one of the reasons I have is because if you listen to the song 15, had she never written another song in her life, a song about being a 15-year-old girl showing up at school and falling in love because you're easily flattered, because you just want to be loved, because things that you and I both remember from high school but pretend to forget because we don't want to admit that we were young. And that's a girl's viewpoint. And so she takes crap because she presents a 15-year-old girl's viewpoint as if it's legitimate. But it is legitimate. Yeah. It's as legitimate as my 59-year-old grumpy-ass lefty opinion. And she did it really well. And I don't care if other people got involved and helped her understand how to do it or edited it. She wrote it. She presented it. She's been a voice for... I mean, this is a very wealthy, very successful, very fashionably cool human being who also happens to be white, who's going to get in trouble for saying stuff because she lives in her, her life in the public eye. Well, but if you look at her, all of the highly feminist writers that are around now in, in songwriting, all the women who are making it purely on their art without having to, to define themselves as women, they're just writers, they owe her. She changed the whole game. And there's somebody right now... You know, if you have enough listeners percentage-wise, there's one guy right now yelling at the radio. Sure. Yelling at the podcast that I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. Well, <laughs> a 
there's something in our society that if people get too too big, the next wave is to knock them down. I, I listened to a podcast yesterday that did 15 minutes on why the world hates Nickelback. And why? Basically, the answer came back to they got so big, and then once media types started saying how bad they were, it's a piling on contest. And, They're a pop band. Yeah. They're just the new Toto. Let them be what they want. Jump on I, them, stomp on their head. I never, you know, I never Oasis got the hatred Oasis broke either. up before they could get killed by the British press. <laughs> That's <laughs> essentially why they did it. Yeah. You know, and listen, the world is full of people who sit in their houses and think they know more than everybody else, but they're sitting in their house. Do you, with your songs, you're talking about, or I guess I, I mentioned it, do you hope the listener gets your meaning? Yeah. Not in the least. Yeah. I mean, I don't want someone to misinterpret a song as badly as people misunderstood uh, Born in the USA because I, I'm not famous enough for it or well-known enough for it, or successful enough where somebody could stick my song on, you know, some fascist re-election campaign. But, uh, so I don't want people to miss it completely, but the, the narrative of the song is the, is the listener's narrative. It's not mine. Yeah. yeah. That's another reason, by the way, to take how seriously you edit your lyrics seriously, because you can eliminate narrative mistakes. I mean, I have a song Leslie won't thinks I should never play. Leslie it's, is your wife. What? Leslie is, is my wife. wife. And she's smarter than me in a lot of ways, and she's better with words than I am in most ways, and, and really understands the language to the point of where, had she had the aspiration to do so, she'd probably be the, the head of some uh, linguistics program at some Ivy League. I mean, that's the kind of brain she has. And she said, I have a song, much beloved by some people, very political, that she said... Under no circumstances can you put this on a record. It's going to sit funny with some people because they're just not going to give you the credit for the, the idea behind the content. And she's right. I've listened to it over and over again. It's an old song. It's 30 years old. I have people, that's their favorite song I ever wrote. I'll never be on a record and I don't play it live. What do you mean? That's a good example of what we're talking about here. Is it because it's... It gets a new interpretation because of what's happening now, or they're just their interpretation is not quite. No, what you it's meant, a represent or? it the character in it, and it's sung in a character's voice, which I'm I do less and less of. It's sung in a character's voice, and that character is a man with way more flaws than positives, and it has a racial component. And as a 59 year old white dude who's who's been able to walk on a red carpet his whole life. You know, who, who, whose problems are minuscule compared to a great deal of the population. If I sing this song as the narrator, mm. it doesn't work. Gotcha. It just doesn't work. I could probably, there's probably a guy out there somewhere who's like that guy, who is a, a representative of that guy in all the positives and negatives, who could sing it and, it and people would understand it. But coming from me, it's just an exercise in intellectualism. And I don't see any reason any reason to to abuse the audience with that gotcha okay that makes sense yeah yeah absolutely i mean when you talk about philosophy of songwriting it's all philosophy i mean the the nuts and bolts of it are learn to play your damn guitar which is a number one learn whatever instrument you're playing stop telling me that you can write songs without understanding how to play an instrument well it's interesting in that vein though that some people can get away with singing a song that clearly is nothing to do with their life johnny cash never shot a man that i know of but you know what? But I believe it when he sings it. There was it was a first of all it was a different world, and secondly, 
representing someone who's done something bad is different than representing somebody who is something bad. Fair, in, I mean, my, in my case, the person would be, you know how complicated David Allen Coe's songs are, right? Yeah, yeah. There's times you just sit there and go, dude's got it right in every way, but it's sure aggressive and mean and sounds yeah. like he believes in the wrong thing. He doesn't. I mean, maybe he does now, but he's written some songs that could not pass muster if you were honest about it, you know, because they're, they're just right on the edge of, I've lost my mind. Yeah. But when you say a guy, you know, when you say a guy went to prison or shot a man or, you know, you're going to Jackson and cheating or something, that, that's a, that doesn't really hold, a, that's a character, clearly a character. Yeah. No, it works. That's what I mean. He, he can do it, but then you get, you know, the, the Taylor Swifts or Gillian Welch, you know, New York uh, society, she didn't do uh, Ivy League, but similar. And Very then, close. Lit, lit, lit student, as they Lit say. student, and then everyone said, what is she doing singing these, you know, basically Americana folk songs, as we would call them now. Uh, she's very good at it. I have no problem with it, but she caught flack for it. At she the caught flack for it, but she's also, I mean... At the time. I think she's over it now, but... And that's a complicated one. I write about anything I want to write about. It's always been my rule. The one thing I have going for me when I sit down and write about what it's like to work and not have enough is that although I come from an intellectual family, my father's a poet, I don't come from a wealthy family and I don't come from a connected family and I've worked since I was almost 11, since 11 years old really. And I've never stopped working. You know, I've written almost all my music in between time between jobs I had to do, including teaching. So I've never gone to a cabin in Wisconsin to write an album. Mm. I didn't go to college for four years to learn how to be a writer. I wrote while I was working. And I picked up a lot of heavy stuff because I didn't go to college, you know? I took a beating physically. So when I, and I and also was in the white collar world for 20 years. So I know what it's like to work. I know what it's like to work in America. I know what it's like to get screwed. I know what it's like to be successful. So I would argue that when I write about working people, I'm one of them. And some people, they'll never be one of them. Right. And I can hear it in the songs. Right. Because they're aspirational or they're, they're easy. And we're not going to name names because I don't want to do that because, again, everybody's music is legitimate to what they did. I think cynical music and music that is music of the state, you know, like, like Reifenstahlish in the sense that it's done to co-opt people. You know, I hate that stuff. Like, I think a lot of country, bro country, there's nothing wrong with bro country. It's dance music for people who like that kind of country. And then there's a few songs every while that pop out that reinforce the idea that it's good to be poor and dumb and happy and let the smart people take care of it. And that's actually, within a Marxist interpretation of songwriting, that's actually doing harm. Hmm. But Cruz, come on, dude, if you don't, if that yeah. doesn't make you drive your car faster, you're dead. End of story. Yeah. No. It's a stupid ass song, okay. but the the recording, the the one with is it uh, Nelly, the one with Nelly on it, mm. greatest pop track. Yeah. Man. I love a good pop song. I'm a sucker <laughs> for. I love the monkeys. So. All right. So. Tommy Boyce, man. Do you? Yeah. Do you have? For purposes of today, I'm thinking maybe is there something you're working on that is in that almost done and you just don't know where it's going kind of? Is it worth playing something like that or would you rather play something I'm that maybe... i trying to think maybe, of what I have. Um, or maybe something that you had that you fixed. That might be Oh, I got one. I, can, I got one that's outside of what I usually do. There is a song and it's been recorded a million times called The Cocaine Blues. Mm -hmm. Go. Sure. 
Robert Johnson. Remember this? Yeah. No, it wasn't Robert, I don't think. I'm thinking maybe Blind Blake or somebody, but... Everyone's done. But it's been recorded all over the place, and it's been stolen by a lot of, you right. know, rock bands. But it's, it's this one. Cocaine. Cocaine. Round my heart and running round my brain. Cocaine. Old cocaine, right? So everybody's, anybody who's been in the acoustic music world has heard that song done by somebody done fast. I wanted to write a new version of it based on the fact that all the cocaine, for the most part in the United States now, the, the high-end cocaine is just basically at private schools. And I want to, and, and, and in, in, the, in the noses of Wall Street bankers, and, right. you know, it's become a, almost comical how much of a white-collar drug it is. Now, someone out there right now, again, if you have enough listeners, who works for a task force somewhere is going, that's not true, there's cocaine everywhere. Yeah, I get it, dude. There's cocaine <laughs> right. everywhere. Right. Just, so I wrote, I wanted to write, and this will be on my next record, I wanted to write a song using references to the, the original cocaine called The New Cocaine Blues. I'll just play it. You can hear yeah. what I do with it lyrically. Just like Kerouac with your dusty jeans and your oil skin pack. But I can tell you're much too well off for that by your shoes. And the telltale signs of the new cocaine blues. your youth at the finest school surrounded by money and well-dressed fools for the only lesson you ever use it's true it's how the deal goes down with those new cocaine blues cocaine blues cost twice as much as they used to but they're still gonna be Death of you. <laughs> well, you think nobody knows who you really are with your Rolex watches and your German car, but everyone down at the local bar avoids you. When they see you walk in with the new cocaine blue. Letters on stone, but you never found anyone to come home to That you loved as much as the new cocaine blue So, 
That's good. And that's a good example Thanks. Of, of my mind, of what I had in mind. I flubbed a couple tiny lyrics and I uh, haven't been practicing it, so the guitar playing is a little sketchy, but that's all right. So you conceived the idea first, like to this do an is, updated Cocaine Blues? This is a rarity. I was going to come out with an album called The Right Reverend Crow Sings New American Folk and Blues. I had that idea for a long time, and I wanted it to look like and be like the records I loved as a kid, which were, you know, just a guy and a guitar. A lot of times they'd been found by some folklorist. They had a horrible picture on the cover. It right. usually didn't look anything like the guy. As it turns out, we've succeeded. And uh, <laughs> so I wanted to do that. And so I was gathering some of the older bluesy things that I'd written because I, I started as a blues player. And because I can't copy very well, I didn't fit in the blues world. I, I didn't enjoy, I didn't want to sound like anybody. I wanted just to play. And some people appreciate that and some don't, but I have a combination of influences as, as weird as Sun Ra to Jimi Hendrix, and then I listen to nothing but blues and jazz and stuff for a while. So I play weird, and I never had the the aspiration to have a... I never wanted to just be a blues guy, so I did a bunch of other stuff. But I wanted to finally put an album together that paid tribute to where I came from, because to me, some of the greatest things I've ever heard were, you know, how blue can you get, you know, stuff like that so so I was gathering songs for this in the process of gathering songs I ended up with a record deal which I didn't expect a production record deal that involves an EP which will be the right Reverend Crow sings American new American folk and blues a full album that started I recorded a lot of in California about three weeks ago and then uh, a two side uh, an A and B side seven inch single vinyl which is going to come out as well I wrote this song while putting all those songs together. So I had two or three songs I really wanted to go mm -hmm. on there. And then I wrote this song because it, I've always wanted to do that because this used to be a go-to song for me when I was a kid, the regular cocaine blues. It's a great way to learn to finger pick. Right. And you, you, today I finger picked rather poorly. But So I, I wrote the song, and that one was one I actively worked on to put in the record. There were about seven or eight songs of the... I wrote some of the songs, I just wrote them, but there are seven or eight songs that were really intended for this record. But, and this gets to that naive question. So you have the melody, obviously, or the basis of it. I have the rough idea what the chords are gonna be. If you listen to it, the melody is 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 very diversionary. You know, it, it's tricky. But but it's based on. Yeah, absolutely so based on that song. I'm thinking lyrically, you've got, I mean, you start out with, do you sit and write down keywords like blues, shoes, Kerouac pack. I'm, what I'm getting no. at is how do how do those? I mean, those are great images, great words. Does, where does that? It, I can tell it you. Sounds like that, a giant puzzle. It is a puzzle. I can tell you. Blank, I, right? I can tell you where it started. It started with the line, the telltale signs of the new cocaine blues. The very first line I ever had, and I didn't know what was going to come of it. And it was probably I probably have 37 sheets of paper where I wrote something along with that, and it didn't work. Yeah, that's what I'm getting at. What that's the process. What, that... what came next was so I'm sitting around. I can't get this thing to work. I know I had the melody going to the four, and I don't do a lot of this where I write the melody before I write the lyrics. They usually kind of kind of tandem. I had this. I didn't want to copy it, but I didn't want anyone who knew that song to have any doubt where it came from, right? So this takes me away from the copying. It's a little different, but anyone who ever heard the song knows where it's coming from. So there's the roots of it. And 
So I have this Telltale Signs of the New Cocaine Blues. And then the next part is I have a big, giant, unabridged copy of On the Road. It's not a book I actually like all that much, mm. but I honor it. You yeah. know? I started thinking about how many people... And, okay, here's, here's the process, and I'm not making this up. It's going to sound like I'm making it up, but I'm not. I'm hanging around one day working on probably emails, probably bullcrap, stuff that has nothing to do with writing a song, but you have to get out of the way to be a writer. Or maybe I'm, I don't know, maybe I'm doing the bills for my teaching business. I don't know. I'm thinking about Springsteen, because he's got a new album. Not that time he didn't have a new album out, but um, I'm on his email list where I get, I can buy, if I wanted to, I could buy every live show. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Right. And it, it pops in like every other day, there's a new show of Springsteen's and they're all edited. I can hear it. I don't know what they're doing, but they're doing the right thing. They're making it sound cool. So I'm thinking about Springsteen. And I'm thinking about who listens to Springsteen. And this lyric is sitting literally on my desk or on my computer. And I'm thinking about Bob Seger and Springsteen, because this is a thought I have a lot, which is that Bob Seger was what working guys listened to, and Springsteen is what East Coast elites listened to who wanted to be out driving across Arizona and have given up their responsibility, and, their, and they were going to be courageous guys who drove a Camaro and flipped the world a finger until they died in flames like something out of Vanishing Point. So I'm thinking of Kowalski now. I mean, this is how my brain works. If my wife's listening to this, she's going, yeah, he's a fucking baby. So... Um, so I'm thinking about that, and it all of a sudden dawns on me who this guy is, the cocaine blues. I mean, I already know he's a, he's a Baylor grad, you know, mm. either the university or the high school. And uh, I'm thinking, okay, I already know who he is that way. He's White Plains, New York. He's not old Roxbury, Boston, you know. Gotcha. So I've got all this, and all of a sudden I think to myself, I know who this guy is. I've seen him walking down the road. He read on the road. So I have... Okay. So you think you look just like Kerouac. And now what looks like Kerouac? Walking around with those stupid backpack and jeans when you're when you you know, when you can call your dad to get home. Yeah. You're just like Kerouac with your run jeans and your oil skin pack and I like specifics. So the oil skin's there just so you know exactly. He's got dusty jeans, oil skin pack. You know that guy, right? Do you yeah. need anything more? No. Yeah. yeah. And then highly polished to look old. And then here's the thing. What does no one ever give up when they're wealthy? Footwear. I've seen it all over Europe in these Trustafarian kids. They're wearing all these clothes that they've let get ratty and old, right? But they're wearing Uggs, or they're wearing Keens, or they're wearing really expensive shoes. Yeah. So the line, I can tell you're much well too off for that by your shoes, because... See, that's, what I, that's why that's I wanted to ask about this verse. specifically, because... It wasn't just that pack rhymed with Kerouac Not at all. or shoes with blues. They're there for a reason. Yeah. It, it, and that's, the, so I know I, from talking then, to you that. Then the next one's easy, right? Because I don't believe you learn a whole hell of a lot in high school. And I believe you learn less in high school when you go to a private school because you're there for connections. And politically, if you look at that, that's pretty true. I mean, one of the problems we got right now is you can trace every idiot up there back to their moment of idiocy in senior high school, in senior in high school, you know? But so then you've got, I want the, the listener to know where he came from and spent your life at the finest schools. Most working people know what that means. Mm -hmm. And the people in the finest schools may know, they don't want to know. You know, surrounded by money and well-dressed fools. Everybody I know has ever worked for a living. That's pretty much what they say. And then... And that's how I feel. And then um, the only lesson you'll ever 
use. It's how the deal goes down. Well, that has multiple meanings, right? Right, right. Um, and the deal goes down with the new cocaine blues is basically a political statement, whether you hear it that way or not. Again, the, again, the audience is going to hear it. They're going to have their narrative. I'm cool with that. Right. Maybe all they hear it is, is a cocaine song. And then the next line, right? You've met these guys. Nobody likes them. Right. They need them. Right. So the whole point of that thing is people need you. They don't like you. And then the last one, of course, is you can always tie a song up by killing the dude. And uh, in this case, I kill him. I want him to be dead emotionally long before he's dead physically because I understand from knowing these people, having been in the corporate world, that they're dead emotionally. They've lost something that you and I, as hard as we work, and we're well-off people compared to the rest of the world, as hard as we work, as many things that go wrong with us, as few things as we can just assume we're going to have, I've never met a really happy dude like the guy in this song. Yeah. Well, this is good because you said something to me a couple of conversations ago that there's not a, a wasted word Hope in not. any of your songs. Hope and not. so I think I'm glad we did that because it's important to show, again, they rhyme. And I, I think it, in a non-songwriter's mind and maybe other people, that's where it starts and ends. You know what I mean? Little... We can talk about that another time if you want to keep doing this. Because <laughs> I have actually one of my latest songs has no rhyming at all in it. I did see on the, the YouTube thing when I was looking that the idea of writing half rhymes, which I thought was sort of interesting, instead of full rhymes. Dylan is, can... a, Dylan is a guy who writes, for example, perfect rhymes. If you go through all his songs, he doesn't like half rhymes. And, and there are a couple of half rhymes that should just be killed, dead and, dead and gone, you know. And there, there are some basic rules of songwriting that, that I ascribe to that I wish everyone would ascribe to. Yeah, what was the word? There's two words you said you should Well, there's a use. couple words you should never use unless you're so good you can figure out a way to use them in a way that makes more sense. One of them soul. The soul is often used as a way of saying, this is how I feel, but I don't really want to go to the enough yeah. work to tell you exactly how I feel. Just, yeah. I kind of feel this way. Um, I'm not a big fan of the word dream either, and dreams. I'm not a big fan of religious references unless you are using it in a way that holds up. Like, it's a good example. All right, I got, I'll got. i give you one, if we still have time. Yep. So I got this song called The Blues That Keep You Rolling. Because I think the blues are by, by most, I'd say for most people, the blues are actually a positive. Oh, yeah. Getting out the thing you feel right. Very few blues are whiny diatribes like you know yeah. you get from some guy who goes to Wisconsin and writes an album in a cabin. You know, it's it's most blues and most soul is meant to lift you from your absolutely your situation either with irony, sometimes with anger, sometimes with absurdity. Right? I mean, or if nothing else, man, at least I don't have that in my life. And I mean, one of the great things about about blues is it took the place of gospel music for some people, which is good because. Gospel music, for the most part, gospel music was a good starting place. If you think about what gospel music did for the people that needed gospel music, it served its purpose. But as you move into a society where, you're, where you have fewer people trying to kill you and you're more equal, then you have to start giving up to some extent mythology and faith. You have to, or else you can't go forward, as evidenced by the fact that the faith community we have now is trying to pull us backward as fast as they can. So there's a verse in here. This is a short song, so I'll just do it. Well, the blues can be a river 
Where sorrow goes to drown Or a single cigarette When there's no one else around But when your heart is weary The only thing you need Is the blues that keep you rolling The blues that keep you rolling Sing on Sunday morning Your prayers up to the Lord Send out all the blessings that your money can afford But man's only salvation From birth to tragedy Is the blues that keep you rolling The blues that keep you rolling I've got a river to cross, mountain to climb. I'm as scared of living as I am a dying. But the stones in my pathway, they don't hinder me. I got the blues that keep you rolling. The blues that keep you rolling. Got the blues that keep you rolling. But there's a point behind that song. The, the, first long, the first verse is, you know, obviously, I think the blues apply cross-culturally. Uh, I think when you try to take on another person's culture, you've failed in the blues. So I think the pork pie hat, uh, black sunglass wearing, dark jacket tie thing that goes on and so often in blues is a white person feeling guilty about singing them. And so they try to become more like what they loved. So it's probably an honest reaction to feeling like maybe they're borrowing from something they don't fully understand. Sure. But everybody's got the damn blues. It's just to be in your own blues. And, and that one for me is the first verse is the blues always seem to be useful. They're there for a reason. They're psychological. They're therapy. The second verse is you can pray all you want, but that's not going to fix anything. I mean, it's an atheist blues song. People don't even, atheist gospel song in some ways. And the last verse is, you know, my troubles are my troubles, but, you know, I got the same problems everybody else does. Right. And, and that's a pretty honest thing. I'm as afraid of living as I am of dying. Most people are. Right, right. Uh, and, you know, it's my version of I know you got soul, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, and that one was intentional too. I mean, that's only three verses. That's only a few lines. Some of them are very much in reference to other music form. I mean, you could come in there and say, well, he might have borrowed this idea from here. Or he might have done, and, you know, Part of that is a reaction to the song People Get Ready, which I've always loved. Mm. You know, it was one of my favorite recordings on the planet, is the original recording of People Get Ready. You know, that song is so keeningly hopeful. But, <laughs> you know, hope and faith and all that stuff, that's, that's a poor substitute for preparation, optimism, and uh, honesty. To work. All right, Nathan, we could do this all day, and actually I hope we can do it again. I'd love to do it again. I'll tell you what, I, what I need to know is, is anybody out there listening to it find it useful? I'm curious. Well, I mean, Because it's such a personal thing to write, and, and you don't want to try to take on other people's needs when you write, but I'm curious. Does, does listen to one guy talk about his very personal way of doing things, does that... Yeah. Is that valuable to other writers? I don't know. We'll it see. is for me sometimes. We'll see. It is for me. It helps me. 
Tell people where they can get your stuff. Oh, that's that was the part that I wasn't sure about. Um, you can get me it all at my uh, website, www.nathanbellmusic.com, because the other Nathan Bell costs thirty three hundred bucks right now, and I'm not paying that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. <clears throat> Fair enough. Thank, Thank you, brother. you for doing this. Thank you My guys pleasure. for listening. People are strange. People get red. People. People who need people.